Welcome, hunters, non-hunters, hikers, bikers, conservatives, fiscal conservatives, kayakers, gardeners, socialists, liberals, libertarians, comedians, readers, non-readers, tree huggers, film lovers, artists, craftswomen and men, and all the hard-working and caring people on this planet. Welcome to my podcast, How for the Wild. Reports and stories from my hikes and the days I've spent alone living in the mountains and desert canyons. Reporting to you the changes I've seen and how it has changed me. Adding my love for literature, food, film, music, and drink along the way. I promise my listeners, I will not use popular buzzwords that are dead and have no real meaning, such as sustainable and green. Instead, I will report directly from your backyard and mine what is happening in the farmlands, mountains, and trees, or lack thereof. Join with rangers, scientists, wildland firefighters, veterans, backcountry folk, and astrologists, the men and women on the front lines that have inspired me working to save these last remaining wild places. Please join me in reconnecting to that something that's greater than us and what we can do to return this ball and space we live upon closer to the paradise it was just a few decades ago. Please support us, join us, and keep listening. I appreciate you as much as I love the wild and what we can do to keep it. Thank you. So let me ask you this: do, do you find that in general, does the National Park Service and rangers throughout the world understand that indigenous people are the most important? Do they go out of their way? I guess it was what I'm asking to make sure that the indigenous people represent um, the parks and the thinking and the understanding. So I can't speak from any of the different park rangers and ranger associations or programs around the world but just from that experience at the world ranger congress some of the other countries i think are doing way better than we are here in the united states and in the united states with the national park service i think we've had our ups and downs and i think slowly many of the parks are are starting to realize how important these indigenous communities and these indigenous stories really are. And you're starting to see some of those changes pop up in many of the parks today. And a lot of that's thanks to folks like myself and others who have worked in the National Park Service and has stressed and persuaded management to make some of these changes. Welcome back, everyone. You know, in this podcast, I I wanted to start with that question. 
Uh, in the very first episode, I had stated that I asked Ravis some pretty difficult questions. And this is the part of the interview where we get to those difficult questions. You're going to hear in the background, you know, in my introduction, I say, reporting to you from my backyard and yours, and I should say in the National Park backyards and Wyoming backyards and Montana backyards, Utah, but yeah, I can keep going. But I say reporting to you in the backyard, and I'm literally reporting to you from my backyard. And unfortunately, there's some construction going further on down in town, so it looks like my uh, road has become more active. But what's cool is, in the middle of this episode, I read from my journal. So I, I keep a journal when I'm on the road. And what's really cool is I'm talking about a dog and as if on cue, uh, across the holler, <laughs> uh, a dog started barking. So that's that's it's another element of the of the podcast um, that you're gonna feel in here. And the reason I mention that is because a big part of this is story. A big part of this is place. And so you're gonna be hearing my little essays and stories from my travels in these places. This uh, interview was done back in November, and I wanted to give you an update. I've become friends with Ravis, and uh, and talking to him, I'm I don't know if you followed the news, but the Navajo Nation and Native Americans in general got hit really hard with the coronavirus. So I checked with Ravis a couple of times, and the good news to report is they got whammed. But they have it under control now, and he reported that they're actually doing better than the surrounding southern states and areas around them. He said that they jumped on it and wore masks, and they were super strict on social distancing. But that's uh, one thing I've come to find, and uh, he reported as such and has talked to me about is, you know, how important community is to Native Americans and uh, they got their shit together for the most part the other thing I wanted to mention is I struggled with the title of this episode Um, originally I was going to call it the headline part Indigenous Lives Matter or Native Americans Lives Matter I struggled with it because I didn't want to take away from what I consider a revolution taking place I didn't want to take anything away from the Black Lives Matter movement. But I thought it was important that here's another culture and races that are dealing with a similar horrific struggle. Right? I mean, the podcast itself, this episode, is part of it is Native Americans, another trail of tears, pushed off of land once again it's in this podcast but I struggled with uh, calling it Indigenous Lives Matter and I spoke to my friends uh, several that are black and uh, colleagues that are black and I asked them about would this title be disrespectful would this title take away from Black Lives Matter and overwhelmingly the united response was no, by no means. 
we have no issue with it whatsoever. Anything that could shed light on a similar plight, and certainly of a culture that has experienced the same terrible struggles, and um, struggle's not the right word, is it? The same confinement, the same racism or not being allowed to feel or have the same opportunities and even opportunities doesn't say it. We'll just leave it at that. I, I also spoke with Ravis about it and, and wanted to get his thoughts and his first inclination was don't you know don't use that title because they don't want to take away from Black Lives Matter. But I pushed him on it, and I said, you know, it's it's important to reveal this because I don't think enough attention or that people understand the plight and the struggle that they have had to face. And he had suggested, he came to terms where he was okay with Indigenous Lives Matter. He didn't even want it to be Native American lives. He thought he should encompass Indigenous Lives Matter. But he had suggested, and I basically told him, I said, it's your call. I'm going to give you the title. What would you like this episode to be called, considering the material that we're focusing on? And he said, you know, why don't you incorporate a slogan that we have come up, meaning Native Americans, um, a little over a decade ago, and that is, we're still here. And I thought, wow, if that doesn't say it. From my own experiences, right, when I was a pup and traveling in these areas and visiting these areas and living in these areas for a little bit, I was surprised that there was as many Native Americans still alive and thriving and so from my own experience, I want to report to you, I was surprised. I didn't know there was that many or this many Native Americans. And part of it is the history lessons I received or did not receive. Um, and part of it is just being naive and not understanding and, and probably not as, well, when you're young, you don't, you don't know as much, right, in part, but... So he had suggested we're still here, which encompasses many things. One is Native Americans are still alive, folks, and many Native Americans and many tribes. And he talks about that in the World Congress of Rangers, how many tribes there are and that he had to represent all of those in part and also in representing the National Park in the World Congress of Rangers. But it also means we're here and we're going through a struggle you're still pushing us back you're still holding us back you're still not allowing our voices to be heard you're not allowing our participation in the process uh, simply in living in this nation we we discussed that element and in the Regina White Skunk interview, we certainly go into further depth of this. This podcast is not meant to be political. This podcast is 
you know what it is based on the introduction. But a big focus is story and giving you other people's ideas, other people's lives, other people's thoughts on how do we better take care of this place, how do we return it to the paradise it is. We're still here. And you may maybe recall some of the parks having some information from Mission 66 era in the 1960s, signages, and where they were still using past tense of Native American cultures and using the word Indians and so forth. And today it's, it's changed where it's not so much past tense, but today the indigenous people, Native Americans today that are associated to the parks and... I think here at Canyon de Shea, we are one of the better examples of portraying the story and, and the history of Native American culture here. And one of them, for, for our part here at Canyon de Shea, is basically because the, the Navajo people are, were never forced out during the park's establishment. Unlike Grand Canyon or Yellowstone, when those parks were established, the Native American people who were once residing there were pushed out and they weren't allowed to live in the park boundaries anymore. But here at Canyon de Shea, the Navajo people are actually the ones that approach Congress to establish a park here for assistance in managing the land, more for the protection and preservation of the archaeological resources. And with that, our people made sure that in the enabling legislation that it was included that our people would still reside in the canyons and make our homes the way that we have been and the way that we wish to live. And it's definitely challenging from management perspective, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to, to visit a park and know that the people are still there and have always been there. And I'm thankful as a ranger to work here and to share our stories, to share those stories, and then use this to persuade other parks to make some of those changes too and get more people on board to, to share the stories. And I think there is some fear with the National Park Service today and after going through some of these different um, scenarios and issues with Native Americans and cultural appropriation, cultural sensitivity, those type of topics that some park rangers are feared to even mention or, or touch anything in regards to Native American history or culture at different parks. Um, but my goal has been to try to shift that and, and allow people to open up and not be afraid to tell the stories, uh, but also share with them proper techniques and ways to learn those stories and histories and, and have those indigenous people better represented at the parks that they work at. So that's what I do. and. Small changing, small changes happening in the National Park Service here in the United States. But I think we have a lot still to learn and a long ways to go. Um, one of the great examples of, of some parks working really well with indigenous communities are um, the parks in Australia. So they have, I think, some better uh, relationships going on down there. Um, and... and the land situation is a little bit different in Australia as well. Uh, but there's some parks down there 
that are doing great that I think we as National Park Service could probably learn from if we take the time to, to interact with the rangers and with the country of Australia. Um, Such as specific examples, if you can. Well, um, I can't remember some of the parks offhand, but one of them that was recently in the news was uh, Uluru, which is in uh, the central area of Australia, and their establishment of the park has a board that includes both park managers and also the indigenous people of that region. So they have a, a board that works together and collaborate on how to manage the park. And just recently, the indigenous people were able to get the parks to stop all recreational climbing on the mountain of Uluru at the request of the indigenous people understanding the sacredness behind the, the site there and it was one of the first biggest moves of its kind to take place and um, that's one that's been in the news recently and and then um, some of the parks if I recall correctly the parks the land itself actually belong to the indigenous communities and they're leased back to the country for parks that's what we should do with bears ears <laughs> <laughs> so much more that's what i've come to the understanding i've come to mm-hmm. without a doubt because because of your con- connectedness your understanding of how everything's interconnected mm-hmm. and the spiritual depth that is there there's no doubt in my mind that the indigenous tribes are going to take care of these places way better than anything else uh, industrial tourism is a big mm-hmm. word that's being um, brought back up it was Edward Abbey that coined that term but it's something that I greatly worry about you know I guess in some instance because I travel out here maybe that's not the best way to go about it I'm not certain but I don't like the ATVs and Mm-hmm. You know, I go to a certain place in Bears Ears that I'm not going to mention because I don't want um, it overcrowded. But I, uh, I take my nephews out a couple of years ago, and I was stunned to see that there were three groups of about thirty to forty um, jeeps all at once coming to this area. And fortunately, it was um, what's considered miserable weather which isn't necessarily miserable to a desert, uh, but <laughs> severely cold, windy, um, and, and sn- partly snow and partly rain. And I was very happy for that because all these Jeeps driving past, like, and all the <laughs> dust being thrown up and tearing up the, the landscape, um, they all looked miserable. And it was one time that I was happy <laughs> that yeah. somebody would be miserable. But in speaking to that, it is one of my worries. I don't, uh, we trample on Aldo Leopold um, from, uh, I think he, I'll have to check in this. I wonder how much he learned from uh, indigenous people, but he uh, came up with some kind of good philosophies. And he certainly speaks to uh, the chains of energy and the mm-hmm. interconnectedness. The Grand Canyon, um, do you think that they're changing a little bit? I noticed that the education center now has included some of the tribe members from there 
can you speak to that or do you know of it or um uh, yeah grand canyon's doing a good job they've, they've made a lot of changes and they've been more inclusive of of the story that's being shared there at grand canyon and their new um, visitor center incorporates some of those um, different tribal teachings and, and um, heritage as well there's still a long ways though from from <clears throat> I guess being good at it you know, there's, there's still a lot of things that can be changed a lot of things that could be done um, one of the big things behind a lot of this too to the National Park Service is actually employing the people to tell their own stories and I think that's one of the biggest challenges especially the Grand Canyon um, most rangers that you'll see, frontline interpreters, the one who tell the stories, who do these programs, um, they're interpretive park rangers. And I don't know if there's a, a, a Native American park ranger that's an interpretive, at, interpretive ranger at, at Grand Canyon. Uh, and I think that's one of the areas where parks, um, I think, need to consider not just Grand Canyon, but all parks. And if they want to better tell that story, it only makes sense to have the people tell their own story. And another thing, you know, that's great about Canyon de Chez is that all of our rangers are from here. All of our park rangers are from the area. All of our park rangers are Navajo or, or associated to one of the tribes in this region. I don't know if there's any other <clears throat> place except for maybe Hawaii that has a full staff of indigenous rangers and and that's one thing that the parks could probably work on next it seems it should be an initiative <clears throat> because like I said once again that the understanding and what mm -hmm. you all that are from here can bring to it is that you're from here <laughs> um, but beyond that that a greater amount of respect um, people wouldn't go off trail or have to touch or mm -hmm. even have to visit as much if probably I'm not going to say probably if there were more people from the areas um, mm -hmm. hired uh, to do that for sure um, let's uh, if you don't mind speak a little bit about this well before we go into that what what are some suggestions that you would say to visitors what are, what's the thing that you see over and over again that that um that you th feel needs to be addressed or that you would want people to know if they are coming, if you haven't already stated it? I think if they come to Canyon de Chez, one of the most important things to know is that it's still a home before anything else. You know, it's a home before a park, and there's still a lot of people who live here, live in the canyons, who live off the land, work the land, and, and at the same time, we as Navajo people aren't people living in the past. You know, we're just like every other American in the United States. You know, we wear blue jeans, we got smartphones, we got, you know, brand new vehicles like everybody else too. You know, we're, we're not much different from the visitors themselves. But when they come here, just know that it is a home and it's our home first before it's a park. That's for... Canyon de Chez, anyways. You know. One of the things that what I 
I do when I come to an area is I'll just sit and like observe and watch things and uh, I had uh, gone to the parking lot outside of the market is it called what's it called bazaars bashers 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 mm-hmm. and I just sat in my vehicle for a little bit and was like kind of get myself together before I came in to the park mm-hmm. um, and I noticed how many people were coming in at that early morning I also noticed a lot of people that that seemed to be maybe homeless I, I don't know for sure but it seemed that was the case I, uh, I've spoken to a bunch of people on my travels and I met um, a mother and daughter who uh, had to drive two and a half hours um, to work and I was wondering if uh, is this area are you suffering do, um, for work is it a tough time that we're in well the <clears throat> Navajo Nation as as a whole like many other reservations in the United States um, Native American reservations you know, it, it's it's challenging to be able to be at home and also find work to, to have a steady income. And here in the Navajo Nation, our unemployment rate is extremely high. Um, I think the United States goes crazy when they're like at 5% unemployment rate. But out here, we're like maybe four or five times that, if not more. And, and that's just... Currently, the norm, unfortunately, there's not a lot of um, opportunities for work here on the reservation. And it's, it's hard, because it's a reservation, to bring outside businesses and corporations in to, to offer employment, you know, to, to do the different businesses and so forth. And the challenge is that reservations are not lands that belong to the actual people, which is you know, kind of concerning when you really think about it. You know, reservations, our reservation anyways, is our lands that are held in trust by the Department of Interior. So it's technically federal lands, which throws another layer of um, red tape when it comes to businesses and, and so forth. So because of that, there's not a lot of employment opportunities. Um, A lot of people, a lot of families struggle out here. Um, I parked my car near the back of the empty parking lot. There's several worn down buildings that follow the perimeter. One that is shaped like an old broken down abandoned pizza hut. I parked in a faraway corner near a small grocery store few times bigger than the convenience store named Bashers. I'm in Chinle, a small dusty town in the heart of Navajo country, northeast Arizona. This could be any small town USA, but for the occasional tumbleweed and the stretches of desert and pink and red rock canyons that lie just outside of town. Next to the grocery is an awful looking cell phone store with only one or two of the day glow cheesy advertisements that go with. Further along is the post office and the health center combined. It's 6 a.m. and I've had little sleep. I've been on the road now for two weeks, camping out or driving the majority of these nights. 
it has been cold to say the least single digits and teens but I stay warm this isn't my first road trip I'm prepared with my down coat fleece sweats and roll up mattress that holds my body heat in still I have not had much sleep mainly because of the excitement of being in the middle of nowhere and spending days hiking in the wild on this trip I've come across Colorado just a few days ago I heard but did not see a mountain lion I heard her yell at some other predator or bothersome animal that echoed off the side of the mountain. I saw her big prints in the snow by the gushing stream and again on a mud, silt, and shale slide when I hiked up that mountainside. This is what has kept me from sleep. I'm enjoying the heat pumping from the heater inside my car and the pink and orange strokes just beginning to appear in the sky. I'm excited and hopeful once again. Today I will interview Ravis Henry, a Navajo Ranger. I've never met a ranger I haven't liked. The same applies to most all Native Americans I've met. I'm also excited to get in that store and get one of my staple on the road and camping food supplies, chocolate milk. Depending on how quickly I want to get on a hike, climb up a mountain or into a canyon, it can be the main breakfast source. That with a banana and a package of almonds to munch along the way, perfect. Sitting in a parking lot may not seem fun to a backcountry into the wild lone backpacker, but I don't mind it. In fact, I do it often. Go someplace and just sit or stand and observe. I wanted to get a feel for Chin Lei again. It's been a few years, but I'm certain I'm in the right place. I know what day it is only because of the interview I've set up with Ravis, but it feels more like a weekend it feels more like a Sunday. Deserted parking lots with the sun about to come up will do that to you. Whenever I think of a place feeling like another place or another day, I think of Chris Cornell and Soundgarden's song, Feeling Minnesota. And a burst of anger at the machine and knowing Big Pharma took another one of my profits. Too many this year, making my head and stomach ache for a minute before I return to my sky and what I'm supposed to be doing here in the first place. Another ritual, feeling place. What one has to do, what one should do to prepare themselves to be respectful, to fully feel a place or have that place feel you. Stop, be still, listen. Outside my window, just in my periphery, I see a bright white figure appear. It's a dog sort of startling me. She's a medium-sized mix of lab and pit. She's missing a back leg. She has one beautiful blue eye and one sort of frightening gray eye. She slightly lifts her right front paw barely off the ground and looks at me before she trots on. Was she checking to see if she knew me? Suddenly three other dogs show up. One sniffs and licks blue eyes ear. The other two she is not friends with. The dogs are all sizes and mixes. One looks like a pointer, another like a shepherd, more lab mutts. They are teaming up, nervous and walking every which way, but staying close to the front of the parking lot. One of them spots a burger wrapper and two of them begin to eat whatever leftover meal is there, licking the ketchup from the wrapper, one warding off the others while the other eats. I see the ribs of most of them protruding 
and suddenly I remember my manners. Another group of about five dogs appear, looking more nervous than the seven or so that have already showed up. I cannot feed them all. I wonder if there will be trouble. All the dogs trot one way, then another simultaneously, appearing like waves going in and out to sea. All of them but for my work girl with the blue eye. She moves only when more than two come near her, and always she is erect with watchful eye. She keeps a safe distance from the packs and stays closer to me than the rest who stay closer to the storefronts. I think, what do I have up close in my crate of food that will stick to her ribs? Blue corn chips? No. I'm out of jerky and lunch meat. I spot my other coveted breakfast food and occasional nighttime dessert. Jojo's. Delightful vanilla sandwich cookies with icing inside. I allow myself one box per trip. Trips range from two weeks to three months. And for the last decade, trips include a stop at Trader Joe's from my sister's house before I begin my road trip. For the most part, hearty breakfasts on the road is a ritual and a needed one at that. Up before dawn, sausage and eggs off my little grill on an English muffin as a staple, or a pan full of quinoa or rice with two fried eggs on top, oatmeal the other old standby. But for the in-between and hurried days, chocolate milk and a banana, or four quick crunchy Jojo's, they do just fine. I wait until the dogs are further away, closer to the storefront, before I roll my window and whistle to Blue Eye Beauty. She turns and trots toward me, away from watching over the pack. I roll the cookie with a slight curve almost perfectly to her. She scoops it up in her mouth and smiles, her eyes locked on me while she crunches away. She takes her time chewing and enjoying it, which surprises me considering the competition she has with all the rest. Her ears even go down in that submissive thankfulness. She stands still and seems to know that's all I have. I swear to God she gives me a nod and now acknowledging my kindness to her. I nod back. You're welcome, I say out loud to no one but her. Shortly after this acknowledgement, this little moment of connection with the dog, a man of about 24 appears. He has on a navy blue and gray flannel coat of some kind and a hoodie underneath. His black hair is pulled back in a ponytail and spread out over the hoodie. He is a Navajo with a boy's face. He is barely a man yet. He walks past bashers. The dogs come near him but not too close. They give him at least a 10 foot clearance. Some of them follow him, hanging back behind him his hands in his pockets, he does not acknowledge them. He stops in front of the health center post office and paces back and forth, occasionally blowing into his cupped hands to keep warm. He has no hat to cover his ears, no gloves on his hands. An old four-door burgundy Pontiac pulls in and takes one of the very front parking spots. It appears the dogs, the young Navajo man and I have beat the store clerk. Two more young men appear, one at a time, coming from different directions. They are shorter and look far more gaunt than the first man. All of them Navajo. A few pickups and older styled cars looking as if they all came right out of the 80s 
similar to the Pontiac, begin to pull in. They all have empty milk jugs they are taking inside of bashers. This must be a place where many of the locals get their water. Then, a middle-aged Navajo woman with shorter graying hair and glasses gets out of her car with a bag of dog food. She begins to lay out piles of the dog food with a big plastic cup, far enough away from one another so the dogs won't fight. I see Blue Eye and her mate together at a pile and I feel better, and further warmed by this act of kindness. More light reaches the backside of my eyes, easing the worry I have about the Navajo men showing up, and the dogs, and the rundown look they all have. I see in that far corner of the parking lot there are seven men now lined up, waiting for something, I think for the health center to open. They have all come singly without cars. Their clothes look worn, their faces are filled with an attention they can't quite get to, but feel desperate for. Many of them look in need of a shower and a warm bed. With the exception of one man, none of the others interact with people coming to get groceries and water. They stay what seems far away from the grocer, standing amongst themselves, often turning their backs from certain trucks and certain people, getting out of their cars, coming to the grocer. At times, they seem to see someone they recognize or know as a kind soul, and they walk up and interact. I'm heartened to see them smile and laugh every now and again. I have seen this same look, the look they have on their faces in my own small town, all the way back in Kentucky, and in the many surrounding towns everywhere, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, everywhere USA, in every town everywhere, Nevada, California. It is a gaunt, worried-filled look with mistrust and quick flashes of anger, as if they are not here at all but stuck in another place simultaneously. And in that other place far away, they are searching for something, something ripe for a Twilight Zone episode. I know if I write that script it will end with Big Pharma, some executive sitting on the back deck in some overly big, overly decorated, but with views we'd all occasionally like to have. Back home when I began to see more and more of these gaunt faces showing up with that worried look on their faces, walking the streets, in my head I noted to myself, it's like the walking dead has come to life. Everyone in this parking lot is Navajo, the healthy, the smiling, the busy with their days getting out of and into their cars, and those gaunt men in need of something, standing around waiting. Here. I am the outlier, the only white man among 20 or so dark-skinned, dark-haired Native Americans. I am in their country, their place, yet less than a mile away from this meeting place and grocery, I feel more at home than I do in the small town, green hills, hugging the river and farmlands where I grew up. Many of the Navajo close enough to spot me look up and notice my difference, that I am not quite one of them. Most of them smile or nod to me. I feel a bit guilty going to get my chocolate milk when many of these people are here out of necessity. The dogs and the men, water, supplies, food. My attention falls back on the men standing around that have not driven here. I wonder what will these men be seeking? Needed medicine? 
food, something to ease the pain, I decide to skip the milk. I should fast after seeing what I saw. I should fast anyway for the interview, in preparation, in prayer, out of respect, to clear my head. I will eat and both be nourished and cleansed of the light rising over the canyon, and further nourished by what wisdom Ravis will share with me. I make a half circle around the parking lot to pass by a long fence next to Bashers that I spotted when more light filled this place. There are hundreds of wrappers blown up against this long fence. Homes on the other side of it, still pretty blotches of pink desert all around. I see a woman at the edge of the parking lot. She looks both hopeful and unsure, walking, holding her coat shut with her ungloved hands. She also wears a big plaid coat with a hoodie and no hat. She cuts across the parking lot, also avoiding bashers and the people coming in and out. Her hair is longer and fuller than any of the boys' hair. I wished her well, too, and hope her life and troubles diminish where she finds the way to fight through them. I would stay and maybe try to talk to a few people, but it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem respectful so early in the morning when people are still collecting themselves, organizing their thoughts and deeds for the day. I have water. I have my oats if I need them. The sun will be coming up soon. I have an interview to prepare myself for. Another soul to meet. What will I learn from this man? What nutrition does he have for all of us? Besides, there would be too much sugar in the milk that would cloud and dull my waking brain. Goodbye, beautiful blue eye. Nice woman who fed the dogs. First man besides me to get here. Big Navajo man that carried six jugs of water to his truck and two bags of groceries at once. Goodbye, Bashers parking lot. Goodbye, my fellow human beings. My dogs. May you all find what you're looking for. Best of this life and its gifts to you all. And then, like many other communities, we are also dealing with a lot of different um, modern diseases and substance abuses and so forth and um, so what you experience at Bashes is not so much people who are homeless but people who are affected by that disease you know by those addictions and um, I'm very confident that each one of those people have a home but they choose not to go back because of what they're dealing with and Bashes just seems to be one of those hubs where they might be able to, you know, get a, get some change from someone or get some food from someone. And um, that's the reality of where we are. And I know it may sound like, from what I've shared so far, that a lot of things are, are beautiful and, and almost like everything's perfect for us, but it's not. You know, we have our challenges, and um, that's just one of the many that we deal with in the modern era. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you deal with it, but it sounds like the possibility that you're confident that each and every one has a home, a place where they can go to, so then that kind of lies on their... Mm -hmm. getting it together and either dealing with the 
uh, addictions or diseases, um, et cetera, or not, and also probably, I guess, embarrassment, everything that mm-hmm. goes along with that. Same thing that that we somewhat deal with. Um, mm-hmm. I do think most people do have a place. Most family is still strong enough that they can go somewhere, so that's a that's a good thing. But yeah, that's a whole nother ball game. <laughs> Anything else that you? Well, just going back to what you shared about um, maybe giving it back to indigenous people. You know, I do want to state that we as indigenous people we have our own challenges as well. And um, as diverse as America is, um, our our individual tribes are just as diverse today, and we have a lot of different influences and different um, things that are thrown at us that even within our own tribe as an Abahu people, as a nation, we have a lot of... um, disagreements and we have a lot of challenges within the tribe Uh, so even if you were to just for example give the whole management back to a tribe um, the tribe itself will have challenges as well and and we see that a lot here with our tribe as as, as Navajo people and um, we've had challenges here at Canyon Deche because of that and when it comes down to you know operating the tribe on the government level and trying to get things moving, you do come across those challenges of trying to stick to our traditional teachings and our cultural roots, but also how do we move forward? How do we, how do we do that? You know, because, you know, how do we bring in these economic opportunities, but not go against some of these traditional teachings? So that is a balance that's really, really hard to find in a lot of indigenous communities today in Western concepts. And how do we get our people to live in 2019 but also not forget who they are? Um, I think that's a big challenge with a lot of indigenous people right now is retaining the knowledge, retaining the language, retaining the stories and the culture, but still allowing our children and our people to live as freely as all Americans and when you have a lot of influence from the outside world it, it's really challenging to, to get some of these things moving to get some of these things done when social media drives our children's interests when um, these outside businesses drive our politicians and our leaders um, it's the same way here with our tribe as it is in the United States government you know, there's a lot of um, pushback, there's controversies, there's politics, you know, there's two sides to everything and, and finding that balance is a big challenge. So even to say to give it back to the indigenous people, I think that in itself would be a challenge. <laughs> and, and it's the reality of today and the reality of where we are as, as, as people. But with what I shared earlier about going back to the indigenous people, I just want to maybe clarify a bit by what I mean is going back to the traditional knowledge holders, the people who have these stories, the people who still speak the language, the people who are still practicing the ceremonies. Those are the people that are still rooted to the place. They are still holding 
the foundations of the culture. Uh, and I think those are the ones that have the answers. Um, but as a whole, our people are just as diverse as everyone else. We have Navajos who don't want to speak the language. We have Navajos who would rather destroy resources rather than preserve them. And um, we're not a perfect group of people. But with our cultural side of things, there's still a lot of power. There's still a lot of uh, resilience with our people in that aspect. I'm pretty certain, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to ask anyway. You've obviously stayed connected to the those in touch with traditions. Um, is your grandfather one of them? Are there many people? Yeah, many people in my family, in my life, that I'm associated with are, are tradi traditional knowledge holders. Some of them are um, healers or singers or practitioners. Um, and I myself participate in many of these different um, ceremonial activities and I become a knowledge holder myself you know I share a lot of these stories I share a lot of these teachings uh, and I do as much as I can with the youth you know I find myself more in that leadership role of passing on the knowledge that we have left with our youth and encouraging them to to take on what we do have um, but yes I come from a, a strong family that's still rooted in our, our language and our traditional doings as well and people outside of the family as well people in the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. most curious. of my network that's outside of my family are with people who are still rooted in the traditional teachings um, so my yeah my, my bubble is pretty large but it's almost all the same when it comes to the perspective of our culture nice I think that's something I, everybody could stand to use. Um, man, if a company could bridge that red tape <laughs> and, and, and problems, how what a great possibility that, that that would be. It would take a lot of kind of education and listening. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know about you all, but uh, I'm pissed. I'm pissed off about the history lessons I received, or the lack thereof, what was included in our history books and what wasn't. You know, it wasn't until college that I learned about the Trail of Tears. And it wasn't until, like, paying attention in the last several years in my love of national parks that I found out that once again what is what was it the 17th 18th trail of tears where in a lot of national parks once again um, Native Americans were kicked out of their homeland I don't know that too many people know that and it wasn't even until this year that I discovered about Tulsa Oklahoma and how an entire thriving community was burned to the ground. And I don't know about you all, but that wasn't in any history book that I went through. 
in grade school or high school or college and uh you know i'm supposed to have gone to a christian high school and i don't know how in the hell none of that made its way into history books and something else i want to make perfectly clear i am not knocking the national parks and you might say uh, how is that possible when you're um, presenting this this issue um and I'd like to say you can point something out in this world, something that needs to be changed without cutting down the good that exists. And I know in this current culture there's a certain drive for uh, some individuals to be outraged and to destroy everything around the problem. And to me and the, the folks that I hold dear and think uh, are on the right track, uh, that's a whole lot of crying and anger that only increases the problem. You know, I'm reminded of of Harry Potter, the the one scene where he's looking over the lake, and he's uh, he's looking across the lake, and he's waiting for the spirit or his father to show up to save him while he's being attacked, and he keeps waiting for his father to show up, and then it suddenly dawns on him, or he realizes, wait, I'm here witnessing this, I can do something about this, I need to do something about it. That's a, a, a scene I love, and it, um, like I said, I'm reminded often of uh, kind of cancel culture and, and the outrage that's taking place today. None of the national parks, none of the people that I've ever met, in either in administration, in the lower levels of administration, and certainly no rangers should be blamed for this. You know, this podcast is, the focus is my hope is to be a positive movement forward right and a lot of excitement in this so i don't want to be just focused on negative aspects i have met well over 100 probably 200 rangers in my back uh, country and uh, into the wild kind of life right and not once did I meet a disrespectful or non-considerate ranger? They're all considerate. They are all kind. Um, they are connected. They are some of the most patient human beings I've ever come into contact with. They certainly have more patience than I do. And so there's no negativity towards the national parks and the, and the, and the uh, frontline workers, please. Every ranger is working their butts off to make better and to do as much as they can with very little um, help, very little funding. Most of these issues come from the, uh, the nation, our nation as a whole, right? Um, and it, it needs light shed on it, not more outrage. Let's, uh, as a nation as a whole, shed light on this and um, ask for change. Maybe get some funding to get more um, Native Americans to be telling their stories and be uh, the interpretive rangers in each of these places. Yep. This is what we need today more than anything else in the world. Let's be like Ravis. Courageous and honest. Um, not more outraging, canceling out one another. Listen to how he deals with this issue. Listen to what he says and how calm um, and moving forward he is. He's not saying, destroy the national parks and this is awful and terrible. He's saying, this is what I'm doing to change it, and more folks like me are doing it, and we need more folks doing this. So let's 
go into it with that attitude. Yes. All right. I'm out.